0: Hey, welcome, Arc Party listeners. Um, This is the third in a series of six episodes where I am doing an archival reposting of episodes of the unprintable podcast from Lit Reactor that I briefly hosted. Uh, Because Lit Reactor is going dark at the end of the year, I wanted to have a place to keep all of the episodes that I hosted uh, alive and going, and so we are putting them up as archival episodes over here on Arc Party. In this specific episode, I'm joined by Becky Spratford, uh, who is a librarian and uh, incredible resource for horror in the library world. Um, I'm also joined by Sadie Hartman, who is an influencer and um, very well-known reviewer who recently released a book called 101 Horror Books to Read Before You're Murdered. In this episode, we talk about the art of reviewing books and talk about our philosophies of of what should and should not go into a review, how reviews work differently as an influencer, as a podcaster, as a librarian. It's a great conversation. It's very valuable, and I think it's definitely worth a listen. So without further ado, here's the episode. Okay, thank you out there, everybody who is listening. This is Unprintable. Unprintable. The Lit Reactor Podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Olson. This episode is all about book reviews. So, what brought me to podcasting was uh, a general love of books. I started out as a reader, then I got into reviewing. I spent 10 years doing a podcast reviewing books and interviewing authors. And over that time, I developed a real curiosity and interest about what goes into reviewing a book, how people interpret the opinions of people about books. And, um, you know, how bad it can go, how great it can go. Uh, But it all came down to the passion that I had about reviewing ended up being that excellent feeling that you can get when you shared something with someone else and they grew to love it as well. Now that I'm out of the the reviewing game, uh, but still in podcasting, uh, it occurred to me that that, you know, this is not a topic that is commonly discussed the the breakdown of a, of a review, the philosophy of reviewing, uh, or, or any of that. It's not a conversation that's commonly had. So I wanted to do that, and so I set out to find some really top-notch professional book reviewers to get their opinion on kind of the art of reviewing a book. I will start by saying there are many awesome voices out there, and I wish that I could have had all of them. But the people that I have for you today are amazing, wonderful people, and I really respect what they're doing. My two guests today are Sadie Hartman, also known as Mother Horror on social media. And she is a professional uh, reviewer as well as other stuff that she will mention when she does her introduction in the beginning. And my second guest is Becky Spratford, who is a librarian and um, also professional book reviewer. Um, who has been doing this for a very long time. This conversation is wonderful because there's two entirely separate approaches to becoming reviewers, and you get to see it from two separate sides. You have a social media influencer who turned into a paid reviewer for, for magazines and other outlets, and then you have a librarian who does reviews for library resources and also trains people to recommend books to their, their library patrons to entirely separate perspectives that just go so well together. And this is an amazing conversation. I'm very proud that we had, I'm very much looking forward to you getting to it. So without any more of my rambling here are Sadie and Becky, two amazing book reviewers talking about their craft. We're going to start out by um, just doing a quick introduction of who you are and what you do. So if you don't mind, Sadie, getting us started.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, My name is Sadie Hartman, uh, otherwise known as Mother Horror on social media. Um, I live in the Pacific Northwest. I've been married for about 25 years, have three kids. I am currently doing full-time nonfiction writing of book reviews for various different platforms. Primarily, Scream Magazine in the UK, which is a publication. Um, Cemetery Dance online, so those reviews are available online. Um, Lit Reactor and um, Tour Nightfire. Um, sometimes I like have to run through the little catalog here. Oh, I just uh, also started reviewing uh, for Suspense and Mystery Magazine, which I'm excited about. They wanted more Of some horror flavor for their website. So I'm doing that as well. I'm also the co owner of the horror book subscription company Nightworms that I own with my best friend, Ashley. Um, And we are going into three years of business as of Halloween. Mark was our three year anniversary.
0: Congratulations. Thank
2: you. And uh, my name is Becky Spratford, and I am known as RA for All Online. I am a librarian, and I mostly, uh, I would say my full-time job is split between writing reviews and writing about horror, nonfiction, horror writing also. But I also do the other half of my time. I train library workers all over the world on how to match books with readers of any genre. So most of my days are spent providing, it, you know, if your library's closed for an in-service staff training day, I'm the one probably doing it. There's probably a 20% chance it's me. And uh, so I go around and do that training with library workers. I run a blog called RA for All, which is about how to match books with readers written for library workers. But in terms of my horror writing, I write reviews. I am the horror review columnist for Library Journal. There are other people who review, but I do a four times a year column for them. That's eight reviews at a time. I am also one of the horror reviewers for Booklist, which is another magazine. Both of them are for library workers to find books to add to their collections. But I am also the author of the Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror. The third edition just came out in September of 2021. That is published by the American Library Association, ALA Editions, which also owns Booklist. I like to say that, so it's very clear that um, all my affiliations. And um, that is the third edition. So I've been since, I believe the first edition came out in like 2002 or 2003, I've lost track. So since then, according to my publisher, I am the library world's horror maven. So I just go with that. Um, I live outside of Chicago and I am also a library trustee. So I also work in um, a publicly elected official. And I'm in Cook County, Illinois and I like to tell people that I am not in jail yet which is a big deal if you are an elected official in Cook County Illinois.
1: Wow, AKA Becky is very busy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was listening to both of you and um my my thoughts were wow, I just don't do a lot. Um <laughs> no. so I do so a little bit about about me, um, I did as far as reviews go, and this is the, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this was because for uh, the last 10 years, I had a podcast called Booked. And um, the primary focus of that was doing book reviews and interviewing authors. Um, and so uh, over the years, I, I got, you know, a taste of, of doing book reviews. And so I thought it would be nice to get some other reviewers together to um, discuss I guess the craft of of, of reviewing, um, but now I've I've broken that down to um, that podcast is over. I am doing this Lit Reactor podcast every other week, and just kind of pulling people together and having discussions. So I feel like my workload is is kind of laughable compared to you two because um, you are doing some impressive stuff. To get started, I think we might want to just talk about um, how did you get into or get interested in doing reviews, and then we'll kind of look at breaking down how we, how we choose to review how that, how that works and stuff. So um, we might as well start with Sadie again, because I think that's what we did last time.
1: Okay. So um, I started off on bookstagram, hashtag bookstagram, which is kind of a little community on um, the, in the app Instagram. Um, people just have dedicated book accounts and we just take pictures of our books and talk about books. And I started reviewing there, like just kind of sharing, you know, my thoughts and opinions about different books that I was reading um, and simultaneously, you know, populating a Goodreads account with those reviews as well. Um, But really my only audience was my mom. Um, She would read my bookstagram and Goodreads reviews and then buy books based on, you know, my recommendation. So um, I had a huge following of one and As time kind of progressed, uh, my account became more niche and more focused on horror, um, which kind of drew the attention of um, Scream Magazine and Cemetery Dance. So within the same year, they both invited me to write reviews for their platforms. And their main goal was to get um, more women talking about horror um, and just kind of like celebrating the fact that women are reading horror, which which was a huge benefit of being on Bookstagram for me as well, because I felt like kind of a loner. My mom and I read a lot of horror, but I didn't know anyone in my real life besides her that was reading a lot of horror like I was. And when I got on Bookstagram, I found like just tons of women who were talking about it all the time. So I thought that that would be a really good way to sort of draw in my audience um, for, you know, reviewing for a larger platform and having more of a voice. Um, And then from there, I started uh, populating a Twitter account with my reviews and my bookstagram pictures and networking and then just other opportunities kind of arose from that community that horror community and I feel like the the bookstagram community and the book twitter community are very different in the sense that I feel like instagram is more geared towards readers and the horror community has a lot of readers and reviewers but also the authors participate in a lot of the conversations too and that's where I met Becky Um, and Becky has helped me immensely um, navigating reviews because I am not what I would consider professional in the sense that I like did not go to school for this or anything. It's just been through trial and error and hard knocks and then asking Becky for professional advice um, a lot. <laughs> so yeah, I, it, all of the opportunities um, have just really just been people asking me if I would write reviews for them just because I feel like uh, book influencers kind of became a thing in like 2018. I think that really started trending, and publishers were reaching out to bookstagrammers and book Twitter people, and now TikTok asking them to review books and just kind of show a book, even. You don't even have to review it, you just show it, you know? So, yeah, book influencing I think is where I started.
2: <laughs> and then my path was completely different. So, Um, I have been a, what's called a reader's advisor, hence the name of my company, RA for All. Reader's advisors are uh, professional librarians. It also can be, so in the library world, we have librarians and library workers. Librarians have master's degrees of library science. Library workers do not. I deal with all of them. I treat them all the same, but just so you all listening know, there is, there is a bias in there in the library community. So Um, But being a capital L librarian running a department since the summer of 2000 at the Berwyn Public Library just outside the Chicago city limits, um, a reader's advisory department, that was a big deal back then. Um, And I started running that department with the co-writer of my first book, actually, Tammy Clausen. She's now a librarian in Colorado. And we were serving all leisure readers who came to the Berwyn Library. And one of the ways we did that was we wrote up reviews um all the time on our website um in you know we had them in a book that people could look through back then you know because the internet wasn't as big and we would print them out and they were what we call appeal based why someone would like to read the book not so much about what happens and we were creating our own database we even had someone make us an access database back in the day um so then uh, starting in 2004, I started teaching the reader's advisory course at the local university that offered a master's degree of library science program, actually where I went, Dominican University. And I taught there for eight years um, with Joyce Sarix, who if anyone here is in the library world has heard of her. Um, she sort of created modern reader's advisory. And the two of us taught together for eight years and we sort of trained an entire generation of library workers. Since I was working at a library, and teaching, I was doing both of those. And I started a family in that time frame and had two kids. Um, I was not able to, I was getting asked all the time, especially by book list, because I had written a book for them uh, in that time frame on horror to, to write reviews. And I just didn't have time to write reviews. Um, you know, they would be assigned. I was expected to get them done in time. They were paying me. I just didn't have time. And I was being paid to be a reader's advisor and write about all these books. I started keeping a blog in 2007 though, because that became easier. And that's where I had all the books I was reading, leading book discussions on. And as I started to write the second edition of the book, I started a horror version of the blog, which I saw as a free update to the second edition. But it was also just a way for me to keep track of all the horror I was reading. Because in the books, I write an annotation for each title that is in there and all the lists that are curated. And although they're not reviews, I needed to write a review to have something to go off of when I went to write the book. So I, I wasn't necessarily doing this for a living, being paid to write the reviews. But then in 2015, I decided to step away from the library. I'd already moved back to part-time because I was teaching a lot and traveling and teaching others about readers advisory. I'd stopped teaching at the university at that time. And so once I stopped working at the library, I did have more time to review. So Booklist swooped in and was like, Becky, you've got to do this. So I started reviewing horror for Booklist, which um, was wonderful. And it was, you know, one review at a time. And the magazine comes out twice a month. And some months I have like five reviews in it. Some months I have one review. And at the same time, horror was starting to get more popular. So more opportunities came to me. And Library Journal reached out to me to start doing a genre preview once a year, which I do every July now, even before they had even a horror review section. And then that turned into them wanting me to do an entire column so they could focus four times a year. So in the January issue, the April issue, the June issue, and the October issue, I review eight books. Plus the July issue, they give me a much longer piece. It's usually, I think, about 3,000 words. Well, we're going to talk about word count, too, because that's an issue. They give me 3,000 words to talk about sort of what's coming up for the last half of every year with horror. And the joy that has been about it is, well, you know, one, it's a nice extra income stream. It helps me know about all the books everyone's talking about because I've read them. In the library world, we have to have the books read at least three months in advance because they have to go into the library review journal three months before so that libraries can get their orders in and have them. It's, it's a different animal. We're not trying to review the books the week they come out. In fact, I'm often reading books almost a year before they come out with some of these you know production issues we've had in the last two years. But what's been nice is that horror has grown and gotten more popular, and I have been able to cultivate and bring up new reviewers into um, Library Journal and Booklist, and we've been able to diversify the ranks of the people reviewing And uh, I've been really happy to be a part of that. And, you know, it's fun to get paid to read the books I was going to read anyway. It also made writing my new book a lot easier because I'd already read all the books.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. Um, I love that there's just this progression over time of like, you know, you start with something and it just builds and builds naturally and like um, you're getting more attention, but you're also, you know, the big thing about this is that you're bringing very important attention to um books and authors and stuff so it's nice to hear that you know these types of things are um growing um o- over over time I'll do me real quick because I I did review for a while but um for me the podcast I started back in 2011 which by the way no one knew how to do a podcast in 2011 so I was up against um up against the fact that like you had to figure out everything At all, but I had a, you know, my, the person I did the podcast with, podcast with, we would always just talk about books and we had so much fun having a discussion. We decided let's do this as a podcast and see if anybody cares. And so, um, the unique thing for me was that the review was in the form of a discussion about a book that had like a rating at the end, as opposed to, um, I think, you know, the majority of people probably review, or at least, you know, maybe it's different now with you know our different media and stuff but um is more of a written kind of kind of thing um mine was always just chatting with a dude about a book we both read um so it was way more you know informal um so that might be an interesting thing to uh look at how does how does that because like reviewing a book seems like it's a very solitary thing um and my my experience is that when you discuss a book, you it, it informs your understanding of a book and maybe helps you understand it you know, deeper than you would have if you were just thinking about it by yourself. So there might be something to talk about there. Um,
2: <laughs> I do. Sadie and I do that, actually, Good. when there's a book. And I actually did that this morning. I have to butt in because it's actually happened this morning with my editor at Library Journal, Stephanie Close. I am reading Sundial by Katrina Ward for Booklist. And so I knew she was either reading it or she had assigned the review for library journal. And this morning we were emailing back and forth. It turned out that she was the one who read it and is going to do a review. And we were comparing our thoughts because you're absolutely right. It can be very solitary, but you're, and I've done this with Sadie with books too. You're putting it out into the world and you want to just make sure that your instincts are correct, especially when they're conflicted. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Sadie, because I can just, I'll, I'll start gushing, but I want to give you an opportunity. No,
1: yeah. I mean, I feel like um, when you're just kind of locked up in your own head about a book, um, you can just kind of, ha- the same thing will happen while you're trying to write. Every All your words are just kind of jammed up and you don't really know where to start. But if I call Becky or if I talk to a friend or like my mom and I'm explaining to her the reading experience or like the plot of the book, everything can flow. Like you just have like too many ideas, which is always better than not enough.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, And then I think about um, the fact that you both probably have a need to, like Becky obviously read far before publication, but also I'm assuming Sadie, you get stuff pre-pub all the time. So you then need to find someone who has read it, you know, so, and in my my experiences where I've done that, the instinct is I'm going to talk to the author. Like, I'm going to go see like, Hey, I read this thing and I thought about this. Is this what I'm, is this what I suspect it is? Um, so I've done a ton of that in my time. And I know that, you know, probably the average reader doesn't have that opportunity, but does that ever happen to either? Yeah.
1: Especially like, because I was on bookstagram, like, you know, you don't really know if it's like appropriate to reach out to an author, but sometimes your like visceral response is so urgent that you have to like, I remember after reading A Head Full of Ghosts, I messaged Paul Tremblay. It was the first time I talked to him. And I was like, "Ah, what has happened? I really had to process that with him, which was really important um, because what he said back to me, and no spoilers at all, but what he said back to me helped me work through that ending a little better. Um, And then I've also messaged authors and just told them that I hate them because of like what happened to a <laughs> fictional character. So I've been known to just pop into their DMs and be like, PS, I finished your book and I hate you.
2: Okay, bye. <laughs> so so for me, it's a little different because, um, especially book lists, they don't really want me interacting with the authors. I've actually had reviews that they won't publish because an author thanked me in somewhere in the book. Oh, wow. um, mm, yeah. and, and a library journal isn't, as um, doesn't care as much about that. And that's a not-for-profit versus profit, right? Booklist is owned by the American Library Association, and they're not-for-profit. And Library journals owned by a venture capital firm, so it's different. So I understand that nuance. But I will tell you, it is hard. I usually reach out when I'm feeling conflicted about a book to someone. I don't reach out if I absolutely loved it, because I'm trying to Trust my gut. I didn't used to do that. I used to be like, "Well, I loved this book, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one who's going to love it." And since, and it's funny because I will use Paul Tremblay's "A Headful," not "A Headful of Cabin at the End of the World." I was one of the very first people to read that book. I saw him at StokerCon in Providence before when the review was turned in, but before it published. It published like a couple weeks later, and I in that review I straight up said. And I said it to him, like, this is the best book of the year. And I read it in February, you know, or in, in January, whenever it was. Um. And I trust myself now with that because I feel like, well, people in the library world trust me and I have to trust myself. And that took me time to get to. So for that book, I read it and I was just like, I, there's no words. This is the best book. And it's not even close. And the same thing happened to me with The Only Good Indians. I think I might have been the first person to read it. At least Joe Monty told me I was one of the first... Because originally it was supposed to come out in April of 2020. Right, right. Um, And at that time, um, so when I read it like in December of 2019, Stephen Graham Jones was the spokesperson for Summer Scares, which is the um, librarian-driven reading program that I run for the Horror Writers Association. And so the whole idea was, okay, I'm going to read it early. I'm going to get the review out in time. So we'll do it in the January issue of Library Journal because then in – you know, we've already announced you as the spokesperson, but then when we start doing the promotion, the review will already be out and you'll get some promotion along with the authors. And so that was the plan. So I read it, I gave it a star review, and I said then it was the best book I was going to read all year. And I was right, even though I read it in 2019. I said that about it in 2020. Um, and so now I've just started to trust myself a little bit more. Um, but it is hard when you've read it and and nobody else has read it. But Sadie and I are both in a position where we didn't get here because we don't know what we're doing. And I think the two of us right. do talk to each other about that a lot. Um, we have to trust ourselves. We have to support each other as women reviewing horror. Um, I also talked to Daniel Trusoni, who writes for the New York Times. I thanked both of them in my book because that is a small network of women who professionally review horror and are taking very public stands on titles that lots of people have opinions about. So I've learned to do that, which I think was the hardest thing to learn to do.
1: Yeah, I I would totally agree with that too. And like Becky, I did read Stephen Graham Jones's book early in December and I had to read it again before I did my review. Because unlike Becky, I have to wait until it releases before it gets right. published. Um, and I didn't wanna turn in a review at the beginning of the year and then have to wait. Um, so I read it again, um, closer to its review date. Oh my
2: gosh, it didn't come out till August. Yeah. So- <laughs> Yeah. I'll form, yeah,
1: And I, I had a totally different experience the second time and it actually blew my mind even more the second time. Um, and then more people were reading it. So I had people I could talk to about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, trusting your instinct and trusting yourself, especially when you're putting yourself out um, it, online, you know, like on social media, like I tend to be really open about that. Becky tends to like hold hers back a little bit until like right after it's been published or whatever. And I'll just straight up tag, you know, everybody in it and just be like, here's my review, you know, like love it or hate it. I don't care. Um, And at first, you know, it was kind of hard to get like pushback or people saying like, I don't agree with you or your opinion is wrong. I mean, they'll straight up tell you you're wrong and you're just like, cool, cool. Like, you know, reviews are subjective, and we all have a different way of looking at a book. So have your take, I'll have my take, and we can have a discourse about it. But like to just straight up tell people that the review is wrong is just, the, it's just useless. Like, I think that's the hard part about social media is there's an access to people that wouldn't be there, you know, Way back when, when people were publishing reviews in newspapers, um, people would have to write a letter to the editor and take the time to freaking sit down and write the letter (laughs) to the editor. And the editor might not even publish it. So the person might not ever even see it. But now you can post a review and two seconds later, somebody's like, that's garbage. You know, it's just this access that we aren't
2: totally. And if you combine the access with the fact that horror is a genre of the emotions. It's one of the things I teach that it's the whole point of it is it's supposed to make you feel things. And so the authors who do it, well, even if they don't do it well, in my opinion, but the authors who write horror know, and they're trying to draw an emotional response. So therefore, when people disagree with one of our reviews for better or worse, they already had an emotional connection to that book. And it is, and that's great. You know, that means the book worked for them or didn't work for them. But it's hard for them to separate those feelings. And unfortunately, Sadie and I get the brunt of that inability for them to work out their feelings Mm -hmm. on their own at times. Um, And it it gets tiresome, but it is part of the job, right? If we put ourselves out there and we're being paid to tell people what we think and our reviews are held up as something worth, you know, reading – Um, it's, it's important. I I will say that it's interesting because Sadie gets her names on all her reviews. So if you see a review, I like to go to the bookstore and show my kids the paperback of like a book and it's like star review library journal. I'm like, Oh, that's my review. They, I get quoted (laughs) a lot, a lot in books because I write for two of the biggest review journals that publishers look at. Right. So, but it doesn't have my name because that's the, that's the, my reviews are signed in their journals. But library journal and book list are what carry the weight, right? A star review. I remember one time opening the New York Times book review, and it was one of Joe Hill's books. I think it was The Fireman. And you know, above the title was a quote I wrote, you know, you know, and I was like, oh, my like, but nobody knows it's you. Yeah. And I said, but but I know it's me. But <laughs> I will say that now with um, is it called Bookmarks? It's run by Lithub. So they have this review index. Um, where they take books and they have a horror section. So they will post my entire review for everything in Booklist and Library Journal. Every book I review gets put in there um, because those, like I said, are major reviewing sources. And they say Library Journal Journal Booklist, but they have my name also. So since they started doing that, I've had a little more – I've not enjoyed as much anonymity in the (laughs) outside the librarian world. Nice. Yeah. Well, I don't
0: know if it's nice. So I think there, there must be the flip side to that coin though, too, where you get positive reactions from uh, your, your reviews. One of the, for me, I think that um, my audience ended up being more um, writers than, than readers, which it wasn't the intention at all, but I just, you know, ended up befriending all these people. So um, they, Paid attention. And, um, it's real gratifying to hear, you know, someone say good things about like, um, even Josh Chaplinsky, I did his, um, uh, of, of, of lit reactor. I, when I reviewed his, um, book, the paradox twins later on, he, he's, he's talking about how he listened to the review and he said, there are things in the book that I didn't think anybody would get. And you mentioned them and it was so gratifying. So there's gotta be that side too, where either, um, your audience of readers or, maybe sometimes you'll get a reaction from an author too that that is that's grateful for the fact that maybe you you had an insight that they um, were excited about or or you got them excited about an author they didn't know or something like that
2: oh yeah so for me it's interesting because both booklist and library journal uh, pre-pub they send out so they so they publish so like let's take booklist they publish every two weeks pretty much some months they only do one issue but pretty much every two weeks but two weeks before the issue, it's like the publication schedule is crazy, right? Two weeks before the issue, they're sending out press releases to all the publishers who have reviews in the issue, especially the ones that get stars, because that's, we do either just, and we should talk about that next, our, you know how we write our reviews and our reviewing philosophy. But the ones that get stars, especially, um, in the case of Booklist, all reviews are positive, and I'll explain that later. But they send them out to the publisher, And to proof them, but also like, hey, you want to buy an ad, right? For your book. That's the main reason they're doing it. So I often get um, uh, authors tweeting about or sending me an email, like, look at this great review that's coming. I can't show you the whole thing, but here's my favorite quote. And they're so thankful and they're so, and some of them will send me a private message. I'm so glad you got that part of it. And so, yes, that has been very rewarding.
1: Yeah, and for for me, too, like, just being a fangirl from the age of, like, 10 years old and finishing a book and being like, oh, I wish I could tell J.R.R. Tolkien how much I love The Hobbit, you know, to then fast, fast forward to being able to actually tell authors how much I loved their story is huge for me. Like, I know reviews are for readers, but I... I take it very, very personal as a mission of mine to put the right book in the right reader's hands. Like nothing makes me feel better than if I put a book out there, a recommendation, and somebody picks it up and reads it and says, this is my favorite book I've read all year. I just feel all kinds of happy and special about it because, you know, the love of reading and books is so important to me that, you know, authors, when Their book is doing well and being seen, um, especially like indie authors who have to do a lot of promotion all on their own or small presses who don't have the budget for big ads and stuff. For someone like the influencer, if someone just says like this book was so good, um, like Stephanie of of, um, Books in the Freezer on TikTok mentioned a book, that book sold like in the 20 plus thousand copies after that TikTok, wow. it's not an exaggeration. And sales like that can turn a person's career totally like around. Like I happen to know the author that that happened to, and shortly thereafter he got a book deal with Titan. So, I mean, those sales, awesome. those numbers are extremely important. So when I'm writing a review, I am mindful of the author, I'm respectful to the author, even if I didn't like it, I still try to talk about what might be appealing to people, just so that that book can find its audience, because every book has an audience.
2: And I think both Sadie and I agree with this when it comes to reviewing philosophy, horror doesn't get the mainstream reviewing press that other books do. And so I take it very seriously. So my audience is slightly different than Sadie's. Sadie's speaking directly to readers and consumers. And my reviews are meant for library workers. And my just getting a review in one of those journals means that a library, that every library in the country is going to see that review and consider buying that book for their collection. Um, there are some libraries that still have I want to say outdated. I'm trying to be nice because I just did a talk about this the other day. Outdated collection development policies. People don't realize how, how much administrative gobbledygook there is in libraries in terms of getting your book in the library. And so for in terms of some libraries, their collection development policy says to acquire a book, it has to have a review. This is, this is outdated. It's not every library. And I'm working with others to try to stop libraries from doing this. But It does mean that I take very seriously what I review. So for example, in my eight book column for Library Journal four times a year, I never have more than two books by the same publisher, which is hard because like Penguin Random House owns all the books. Um, I always have at least two, if not more indie books in. Um, And because I've been so conscious of that, by the way, Library Journal actually made it last year a goal of all their review editors, um, the people who review the editors for the genres, to make sure that they had a certain percentage of independently published books. Because people like me were considering, insisting awesome. on that. Same with book lists. We try to make sure we cover, um, you know, the big books. So like I have a review in the current issue that came out on November 1st of Echo uh, by Thomas Old right, the, who wrote Hex. But I also have a review in the next issue of a smaller book called Shadow Days that I believe is Journal Stone. So, um, and, and my editors, are very good at allowing me to tell them, hey, you know, most of the time they're assigning reviews to people. And I get some assignments that I never would have read on my own, which I love. But I am like, hey, this, this indie press contacted me. Can I review this book? And as long as I can get them the information in time and we can do it, it can't be out yet. That's a problem. So any of your writers out there who want to be in the library journals, it cannot be out yet. I got a review request today for a book that's out in two weeks. I'm like, I, I can't do that. You know, but my philosophy then is since there's so few books for horror going in front of them, I am only going to write the review to the best reader of the book, which means I'm not wasting my time trashing or panning a book. If I can't visualize, even if I don't like it, if I can't visualize who the best reader for that book will be, I'm not wasting space in those journals. They get so few opportunities to read horror reviews. Why would I give them one that they wouldn't like? and I'm thinking about all the readers that come to the library. So there are books that I personally did not enjoy, but if you read my review, you're like, oh, she seems to have liked it because I'm writing it to the best reader and I'm thinking about all the library patrons who come in who would like it. That being said, Booklist, so Library Journal does have negative reviews, but Booklist does have as its mantra that they will only uh, publish positive reviews. They're not all glowing, but they are positive because again, they don't wanna waste library workers' time Um, giving them titles of uh, reviews of books that they aren't going to buy. Um, So because, again, their time is limited. We do so much else. When I was buying books for a collection, I was also sitting at a desk serving readers, running all the adult programming, doing, you know, trivia night at a bar once a month, book discussions, being the manager of a bunch of staff. So and just making sure, you know, like the bathrooms weren't covered in spilled liquor, which happens more often than you would think. <laughs> so oh and unclogging the copier, which every librarian has a master's degree in. So but so that's the philosophy matters. And you can see it in the reviews Sadie and I write. I think we try to capture the joy of the reading experience for the reader.
0: That is kind of one of the things that had over the years become hugely important and and apparent to me that really wasn't at the beginning of talking about books that I had to kind of you know, mature to, um, more because it was something I hadn't really ever thought about before, but, um, that's, that's pretty much where I arrived at. And so, um, I guess thankfully in the last couple of years that I was reviewing, um, like really from 2018 on, there was just this flood of, and I read a lot of horror, but other stuff too. And like, there, I'm actually thinking about there's going to be an episode of this podcast I do where I just talk about just the explosion of, of, of horror, um, in the last few years, cause I was, I was talking to Josh Mailerman one time and he just lit up about how excited he was about how like horror is having this Renaissance. And, and then, so that just kind of like stuck in my head anyway. Um, I think that I've, I've just had so many books that I'm just predisposed to like land in my lap. Um, so it's, it's become a lot easier, but, um, I definitely have had the thought about when I read a book, um, the co-host recommended uh, of an author that they liked, or they just thought it was like a, a book that would be interesting to talk about. And I didn't really enjoy the book. Um, I would say that I would say, you know, this book wasn't for me. Here's the things I think they did well. And I would try and, you know, be more deferential to the fact that like, I mean, regardless of, of how it landed with me, this was like, this is their art. This was the thing that they created. I kind of, I, I feel like I got what they were going for. It just didn't work well for me, but you know, there's definitely, like you said, there's an audience out that, out there for it. Whereas, you know, in the past when I was just having my own opinions, I was probably a little bit more negative about things. Um, but I, I think that's a hugely important point. And um, probably, um, yeah, like one of the things that it, it, it warms my heart to hear that that's kind of one of the central focuses of of how you want to conduct your your book reviews.
2: I think along with the Renaissance of horror in general, and I know Sadie's doing this a little more actively than I am, is also this appreciation of more extreme horror, that it's not just about oh, the scares and the blood and the guts and the sex and that's been something that I've been slowly introducing to libraries, but I know Sadie's a little more engaged in that actively. And I've appreciated learning from her.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because like there's, we know there's different horror fans out there and I write for Scream magazine, which are bloody pages of, of a magazine, every gore soaked page, every movie still that has somebody's head being chopped off, like, that's what that audience prefers and what they kind of show up for. So I'm not going to review literary horror for that audience, not because I don't think they want it, but because I think I want to really upsell um, extreme horror to an audience who is the target audience. Like it just makes sense to me. You know, I, I didn't do that at first. My first three <laughs> reviews for Scream What uh, I did The Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. I did In the River by um, um, Jeremy Jeremy Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, Yeah, Jeremy Robert Johnson. And I did, um, I can't remember what the third book was, but it also wasn't very capturing to the audience. Um, But then as I started getting to know what they were after um, and getting feedback from my editor about, letters that people were writing in or comments that they were receiving. Um, Then I started tailoring. And then he, my editor there at Scream does prefer that I write negative reviews. He doesn't want just a magazine full of five-star reviews. Um, He likes to shake it up. So I have to make sure that I'm reading things that I probably wouldn't pick out because I'm really good at picking out what I think I'm going to (laughs) like. So I'm pretty successful at that. Um, So I will pick things that I don't think I'm going to, love but I will review it with them in mind I'll be like hey this book was disgusting it is definitely <laughs> not my cup of tea I hated every minute I was reading it but guess what here's what you guys are gonna like about this book it has this 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 and this you should try it and authors have told me like sales went up after your review even though you gave it one one skull out of five you know and I was like cool you know like it found its audience that That's all that matters to
2: me. Yeah, I think that's what the listeners out there don't maybe think about. And I've talked to Sadie about this. You know, we're professional writers about horror. We're both members of the Horror Writers Association at the highest active level. We make money off of writing about horror. So just like an author needs to understand their voice and their craft and the story they're trying to tell and the audience they're trying to tell it too, we have to think about audience also. And I think that that story Sadie gave is a great example of you know changing what you do based on the audience. I, when it comes to extreme horror, I make sure I have, at least, at least in my columns, at least one or two in there every month to show that there are extreme, and I argue to the libraries all the time, like, do you have erotica? I know you do, I'm asking that facetiously, that you should have some extreme horror also. And so maybe I'll throw them something like, you know, Josh Mallerman's Pearl, which I just reviewed um, because again, it came out as a different book a year before, but the libraries didn't really pick it up. So, um, which is a, it is like if, you know, Charlotte's Web or Babe was a slasher movie. And I loved every minute of it. I made it very clear that it was bloody and gross and there were awesome scenes of just maulings and killings and, and it was great. Right. But I also do smaller press ones. Like one of the books I loved most in the last couple years that was extreme. I think it's, is it Paradise Club by Tim Meyer? Meyer? Yeah. Grindhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I sent it to my, to my editor at library journal. I was like, look, this book was so much fun. It is such a bloody romp, but like, that's the story. And he sold it. And then at the end, I saw that he had actually crowdsourced the book like and got ideas from people on what to do. I was kind. It was really, it was just so much fun to read. And so I, but for libraries, that's a tough sell, right? So I gave it a star. I think it deserved a star because for Extreme Horror, it was a great example. But um, I need that little extra push for them to get them to read beyond the Sylvia Moreno-Garcias and the Grady Hendricks and the Katrina Wards. Like I have to, Give them a little more of a push, um, which I think I'm very conscious of. And both of us are very conscious of it. And I think that where you see maybe the difference between professional reviewers and amateur reviewers is that understanding that we're speaking to an audience. And we take it seriously, not just because they're giving us money, but because we know there's power behind that official audience that we are given to start because there's already readers of that venue. Well, I, to
1: piggyback off of what Becky was saying really quick too, is there is this mythology out there that if you are a reviewer and you aren't doing A spectrum of one to five stars pretty consistently, then no one's going to buy into your reviews because you're not um, hitting the spectrum. And I think I maybe held on to that for a little while, but over the evolution of a few years, I've completely abandoned that idea. I don't think it disqualifies you at all. If you're reading a book and you don't like it and don't want to review it and you put it aside and pick up something else... Um, and you write out a review, your review is going to tell people what you thought of that book without the star rating. You don't need to put a one to five star out there. You don't even have to review one star books. You can just not talk about the books you didn't like at all. It doesn't disqualify the reviewer at all because it's about taste making. Like once you have, a, for me personally, once you have a fan base of people who know that you have a quality opinion about horror and you just talk about books that you love and like, it's a win for everyone. It's a win for the authors. It's a win for you. But I do, you know, I still do do good reads and stuff, but I think I'm just going to abandon the whole star thing on Goodreads and only do it maybe on Amazon where I have to, like they make you put in the stars,
2: but. And I would say with Sadie's thing, like you do a, we do a disservice by giving a one star review publicly, I say the screen magazine is a good example of when it's good. But, um, on Goodreads, for example, <laughs> there are books that I've written a positive review for for Booklist because I'm it to its best reader and I don't put any stars on it because I personally did not like it. Um, but I do give stars to books because I also teach librarians how to use Goodreads to find like four star and two star reviews so they can see like the book's best readers yeah. and the book's. Least best reader, and sometimes you can actually find a reason in a negative review about a patron or the reason someone you would like it. You know, so somebody says like, "There were too many characters speaking," and it what should have been one person. And someone's like, "Oh, I like when multiple narrators are in it." So that two star review actually helps. So I talk about using it as a tool to help readers. And knowing I am the biggest library reviewer, for I put those stars on there. But there are books I don't star. I also will say that Sadie and I are at a point. In our careers as reviewer reviewers, that by us not writing about a book or talking about a book, that also says a lot. Now, sometimes it's just that I didn't get to it. I know, I'm very clear about you. That. <laughs> I know. It's like I just didn't get to it. but there are definitely books that have come out that have had a lot of reviews that I don't review on purpose. And I think that people look at that too, and know, that means more than us reading a book and giving it a bad review. And finally, on this topic, if we, if Sadie and I give a bad review that is just petty and mean, um, that doesn't reflect well on us and can cause us problems down the line. Yeah. I'm not saying I go out of my way to be nice, but I think Sadie said it at the beginning. Like she's also cognizant, as am I, that these, this is someone's life. Like this is years right. of work. My goodness, I've written three books. I know how hard and long it takes and mine are nonfiction, right? I can't even imagine if it all had to come out of my brain um, and didn't use research. I'm not going to shoot that person down, you know, for that. They, they worked hard and they deserve some, they deserve at least credit for going out there and doing it. Yeah.
0: Right. Well, you guys gave me like a ton of things to think about. (laughs) um, But like, I'm going to, I'm going to, say my piece on the rating system thing, because um, Sadie, I saw you tweet about it and I was going to jump into the thread and I just, um I decided, well, I'm talking to her in a few days. I'll just, I'll just, you know, use my platform to talk about it instead. So I'm glad that you brought it up, um, both of you. In the, in the time that I was doing reviews, we just stuck to the, you know, the five-star thing for so long. And, and over time, it became so obvious how just um, almost useless it is, because if you think about it, if I've only ever read one book, it's simultaneously the best and worst book I've ever read. And and as I read more books, um, I got to the point where two years ago or whenever Only Good Indians, it was two years ago, right? Yeah. I was like, oh, man, this is. Uh, you know, this is the best book I've read in the last 18 months that has basketball involved in it. So you get to this like level of you've read so much that that there's so many different values that you're you're bouncing off of your other experiences that five stars literally means nothing except for it looks good on on the review sites and stuff like that. So what I ended up doing was I started, you know, uh, pre pre podcast, I broke down something like eight categories of different parts of a book. So I could kind of, at least in my head, start thinking about what were the aspects of the book that I think were done well, what were, you know, things that, that lacked, or, you know, I would have liked to see more improvement on so that during the conversation, I had more of a compass to know what I was talking about than just saying, Oh, I remember I liked this part and it being less thoughtful. So in my evolution, I went from the kind of meaninglessness of, of putting stars to kind of ranking more of the nuances of a book in order to make it that I sounded like I thought more about the book and I cared more about what went into that, if that makes sense.
2: Sadie, he's talking about appeal factors, oh, which I've taught cool. Sadie about. Yeah. So um, one of the outlets I write for is a database that's available at most of your public libraries. Sadie ran and founded it in hers. And now it's I use called it all Novelist. the time. Yes, <laughs> it's called Novelist and it's an EBSCO product. So it's not something that users get access to, but most public libraries in America have access to Novelist. And I both write content for them, although I do that a little less frequently now, Um, but also they buy access to the um, library journal, book list, Kirkland, Kirkus,
0: um, if it's a kid's book, they do the kid's
2: one, Publishers Weekly, right. And so for a book's record, they load that data. So my name shows up in a lot of records on there, but they provide read-alike options and all, but it's all based on something called appeal factors which is kind of what you were saying, Rob. It's the why the book worked for you or didn't work for right. you. And yep. it's things about, and this is something I lecture about to library workers all over the country, appeal factors. I just did it yesterday and I'm doing it tomorrow. This idea of the, the, the pacing, the storyline, the characters, the tone and the mood. And one of the things I do when I have book reviews, I don't do it in my reviews, but I do it on my blog and on Goodreads is I try to get the book down to three words. So three appeal factors Um, that describe the book and the appeal. Not what happens, not the plot, but the things you were saying, Rob, how it's written, how that works or doesn't work for a reader. So one of my most popular examples that I use is a book that's sort of horror adjacent. It's Severance by Ling Ma, which is like the most tame zombie apocalypse ever. People (laughs) just start doing, um, there's a pandemic and people just kind of get comatose and all they start doing is, um, the same rote thing over and over. So like they, they go into this one house and this lady's setting the table over and over. So it's contagious and all, and you stop being sentient. but and it's single focus on one character. And one of my words about it is that it has a sh- it has a um, shifting time frame. It's not it's not linear. And that is if you go to Goodreads, that's the thing people either love or hate about the book. because if right. it's if it's linear, it's one story, but if it's told totally out of order, and it's really the story of Candace, the main character's life. Yes, there's a pandemic in there, but it's about her life from when she was born in China till she worked in book publishing in New York. And then there was an apocalypse and she goes on this journey, but it's not in that order. So that is what you're talking about. And that's something I was, you know, I've taught Sadie about, and she loves using novelists now. Yeah, I do. I love it because, because you can
1: get talking points from it too. So like, if you're really stumbling on, gosh, what is the tone of this book? You know, like, what is this voice? What is and I am horrible at like first person, second person, third person, I always forget. And it will tell you all the POVs It will tell you like all this information that you can just have as like, at your fingertips, when you're writing your own review and using your own voice to talk about your experience, you have all that available that information. It's almost like, Hey, for this writing, this review, you do not have to reinvent the wheel. There are more educated right. people who have already read it and can help you like formulate ideas so that you can get out what you need to say about your personal experience. But You don't have to reinvent it. That's why I don't also talk a lot about plot, because I know that authors and publishers and editors... They spend so much freaking time writing the back of the book. And then you go on and you're sitting there trying to like write this thing. It's like, why? It's right there. Anyone can look it up. Just don't even worry about it. Maybe throw a few sentences in to like help you explain yourself. But yeah. So I think over the years, writing reviews is just an evolution of, you're not going to just jump in and have that same, voice the entire time, it's going to change, it's going to evolve, it's, it's subjective to, you know, the times like, you know, people wanting content warnings are not wanting content warnings or this or that or, you know, putting in um, um, thanking the publisher for it. So there's all these things that like people talk about doing. And each platform is different. Each reviewer is different. Each audience is different. Each book is different. So, I mean, it's really, really tailored to each personal reader.
2: Also, Mm -hmm. I don't even want to start with word count because the bane of my (laughs) existence, and I talk about this with um, Gabino Iglesias a lot because he gets to write these. We sometimes write the reviews of the same book, right? He writes them for NPR and I write them for one of my outlets. And I'm like, oh, your review was so much better. He's like, Becky, you're only allowed 200 words maximum. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Like, if I don't give it a star, it's like 175 to 185, and if I give it a star, I get like 200 to 220. That is not- and these are, yeah. I know, is- it's Nothing. so difficult. Uh, my review of My Heart Is a Chainsaw had, I think, asterisk, double asterisk, triple, asterisk, like f- quadruple asterisks with like footnotes for my editor. Like this word must stay <laughs> in because I don't know how to get it and. I was struggling with, um, oh, Gus Marino's book that come, came out this year, his debut. I was struggling with the fact that there's a dog that is killed and comes back as a zombie. And library workers need to know if a dog dies because patrons will get really upset. And so I was, I went out on Twitter, I crowdsourced. I'm yeah. like, if I say there's a zombie dog, does that give you the sense that there's, a, there's death to a dog in the book? Because I have like four words to portray this. And one of my really good friends who is in charge of collections at the second largest circulating library in Illinois, the Naperville Public Library. She said, Becky, I might not have noticed it in the review, but if I read it and I got mad, which I would, I would go back to your review and I'd be <laughs> like, oh, she did try to warn me. But I have so few words. It's like, it's infuriating. It's infuriating. And my editors can save it because sometimes I just give up, right? I'm like, this is 210 words. I know it needs to be 190. Go, you know, I, I help me because I'm done cutting all the words. But I, I, it's hard. It's hard to get your feelings out, and so not doing plot helps, right? I give like a yeah. sentence, maybe two of the plot, maybe, and then I've got to portray, like she said, the mood, the tone, the pacing. Um, I do have to let people know who's telling the story. I don't necessarily have to go into first person or second person or whatever, but you know, that like these two people are telling it in two timelines, or it's one linear story it's important. It's, it's a lot. And then I always have my last sentence in library journal, they call it the verdict. Um, and I have to actually put verdict and then put it. And then in book list, book list, I do sort of the same where I give, um, comps, uh, read likes, and I try to do it based on appeal. So, you know, I'll say for people who like heartbreaking, constant tension and, you know, gore, like in this book, or like in these two books, you'll like this book.
1: I like doing that too
2: yeah it helps people a lot yeah
0: i gotta imagine it the, the some books help you and some books don't like i was the the book that was like coming to mind as a, as you as you both were talking about um these constraints and i want to get into like more of the editing uh of it um the book that i kept thinking was like it's so easy to recommend paul Tremblay's survivor song because yeah. like it's it's I love it when books take place in such a short amount of time, there's just constant action. It's very tense. It's just constantly moving. So there's like easy things that come to mind to talk about it. But then if you get a book, that's just much more Epic or crazy, how do you then condense that into a small amount of time? So I'm sure that the books can sometimes either help or, or, or hamstring you a little.
2: I had that problem with echo, uh, the Thomas old Belt, which the, the review published this week. Um, Hex was very tight, concise, you know, Echo is sprawling and, and it's, it's good. I'm, it's not, it's good, but it's, it's not as, it's harder to explain because it's more about the feeling. Um, and it's, he does a great job because it's so vast and sprawling. And the other sort of frame is this whole mountain climbing is a big part of it. And so that, and so these giant vistas and so it really works. But so hard to condense it into 180 words Um, and to explain to readers, by the way, because Hex was the biggest library horror hit of the year it came out. It won the genre awards that the ALA gives out. Um, They're called the Reading List. They're for genres by um, the Reference and Users Association. And it was like the horror book that every library worker knew about, sort of similar to like when Bird Box came out. Same idea. And it was a huge hit. So I have to tell people that this is good, but it's completely different. And, (laughs) and also this plot is a lot less easy to soundbite than just hex, which was, you know, this town where the witch has been in control of them forever and none of them can leave. And, you know, they're, they're trapped by her, but also their life is not so bad if they stay there until they make her mad. But this other one is, you know, it's, it's multinational. It's, um, a very amorphous monster that's super evil, but not in one body. Um, there are violent deaths. Like there was just so much and he did not help me, which is good, right? <laughs> Cause the author is doing something new and it's going to be popular and it's very good, but yes, the author did not help me. <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't really have word counts. Um, I don't have to have a word count for cemetery dance or um, scream or, uh, I, for the platforms that, you know, are, are paying, I feel like I want them to get their money's worth. Like, um, I don't really want to just drop, um, a 300 word review to scream, you know, I feel like they're paying me. I'm going to give them their money's worth, if that makes sense. Um, so, but none of them have word counts for me. Um, so that's really nice. Like I can't imagine Becky having to squeeze some of that stuff into 200. (laughs) I mean, like I said, that's basically a tweet. Like I remember when, um, Twitter used to give us like a hundred something characters and I'm like trying to edit myself to say what I need to say. That's very, very limiting. I, I also don't have deadlines. I mean, most of them like scream is a bi-monthly. So I, I turn in all my reviews and then I have playtime like I don't I don't really have to you know turn in a review by a certain amount of time I try to get big releases or important releases or whatever out at the time of release but I just have so many books to read I I just can't like you really want to like I want to read everything but I just am one person who also has a very demanding job you know Nightworms is a lot and I have to read books for that too. So we're doing our best, Becky.
2: I know, and I actually do have very tight deadlines, right? Because these are print publications with strict deadlines. So my calendar is full. So book list reviews are due on a Tuesday and basically every other Tuesday, I have a single review due, um, sometimes two. And, but I also know that my, that is between my library journal um, reviews. So like, for example, actually I, I, we're not on video, but I have my notebook where I keep track of everything and I have written on it. Oh, it's over here, but nobody's seeing you walk away. Um, my due dates and how much they pay me per word <laughs> for all the outlets. So like my January review, um, cause then I have to invoice them too. My January reviews are eight reviews for library journal and they're due in mid November, which means I started reading yesterday for the due date of like the Tuesday before, the Tuesday or Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Um, and they give me late, I'm later than some reviewers for the January issue because we're two months ahead usually. I'm later than most because my editor knows me, she knows I give her a fairly polished um, product that they, she can edit. And then they have um, sensitivity readers who are POC, who are making sure that we're not, you know, we're not being um, offensive in any way. I'm usually fine there. Although sometimes she mentions, I do usually get good, good comments for including, um, people of all, you know, experiences, but so I have to do that. Right. And then, so then I have to tell my book list editor, okay, I can have nothing do this review of sundial is actually due November 16th. I told her, no, I'm turning it in this week because the rest of this month I've got to read and, you know, and review. I could be reading those library journal books throughout and I had the column, I had to tell them by the end of September what the eight books were. But the problem is, since I know they're all gonna appear in print on the page together, I like to write them at a similar time over a week. So I don't use the same words or I don't repeat myself. Um, Cause then I might that notice sense. that when I'm proofreading before I send it off. And I don't wanna give my editor extra work, right? Um, so if I write them all at once, I'm at least in the same frame of mind when I'm writing them and although i don't they're not like linked in any way they are just separate reviews i'm thinking about them as one unit which i think is helpful because most of my readers are library workers who are getting the magazine so here's like the trick about how it happens in libraries like they get like a couple issues of library journal and you have it route it with this old fashioned <laughs> piece of paper and it goes to each department and we mark off when it's come to us and we would use it to make our orders and so many people are encountering in print And the person who's the horror reviewer is or the horror buyer is seeing them all at once.
1: Wow, that's a lot. I mean, this is why you're not on Twitter like screwing around because (laughs) she's busy reading or writing. I mean, I so I mean I keep I keep track of my reading process on Goodreads. Otherwise I wouldn't even remember all the books that I've read in a year. But I mean last year I was kicking butt because it was pandemic and I know that some people just got fatigued and didn't read as much I was like breaking my eyeballs reading books in 2020s it was just such a great distraction from the doom and gloom but this year I just feel like I haven't I have I mean I was at 200 books last year this year I'm at like 140 so I feel like I'm a little bit behind but Whatever.
2: <laughs> yeah, you get to what you get, right? Yeah, you, I know that Goodreads saves me. Goodreads and my blog, all my books are cross posted on there. Um, and the blog goes back to, you know, 2007. So I, there are books I forget the title of. I remember stuff that happens. I type it into my blog search engine and I find it because that's easier for me than Goodreads to find it. Um, and yeah, it's it's not, e- <laughs> there's a lot of books, but I, I mostly use Twitter to promote my company and myself and the i get a lot of clients um, libraries who the person on the library in the library staff who does readers advisory follows me on twitter and then they're able to tell their supervisors about hiring me but i do also post my reviews there cuz i do know more people see them then if i do that yeah yeah
0: just um just so in so like becky when you were going through your schedule and and the breakneck pace. I'm thinking to myself, we even got you to talk to us today. So um, that makes me very happy. But um, one thing that came up earlier that I want to ask about um, real quick, and I know we're probably close to wrapping this up, um, was uh, when you're talking about giving time to Indies as well, I know, Becky, you said that, um, but also um, Sadie, I'm sure it's something that you, you consider as well. And I'm going to use the example of um, one of the happiest moments I had on social media recently was um, I saw that Sadie had um, talked about a book that she had found by an author named Craig Wallwork, who has just been a friend of mine forever. And I've always really enjoyed his writing and I've always thought to myself, man, this guy doesn't get as much attention as I think he deserves for his craft. So just seeing someone who is out there, who is an influencer, who has a bigger audience show up and say, Hey, I really enjoyed this book. It made my day. I was so happy to see him get, you know, get some, get some attention. And, um, then during this conversation, I'm thinking to myself, that was for me eight or nine years ago, Stephen Graham Jones and to, and the, and, and it's cut to today where, My Heart as a Chainsaw comes out and literally my Twitter feed is nothing but pictures of that book for days after release. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I probably don't need to, um, amplify Steven the way that I used to because everybody's got his back on this one. So is there, where do you guys land on, on that? Like at some point, everybody's talking about this book. And even if you loved it, does that, uh, make you think about how much you, expose it or talk about it?
1: Hmm. Well, I think because I also have a background on Instagram. So, you know, like uh, the release day of a book, um, people are hashtagging and your whole feed will be filled with people who've gotten the book. So on real, on a Stephen King release day, your whole feed is, you know, Billy Summers for, for a while because, you know, everybody's talking about how they just got this book. But, um, And my posts of indie authors do significantly less, you know, in numbers and likes and engagement than when I post something like Stephen King. And if you go through my analytics um, on Instagram and you click like my 20 like most engaged with posts, it's all Stephen King. So if I post my If I post my collection, if I post my bookcase, if I post a new release, if I post my top 10 Stephen King, those are all my most popular posts. Um, And it's just actually kind of makes me a little sad because um, there is a wealth of talent in indie fiction. Um, that really deserves to be amplified and the small publishers are doing really great work, but they don't have the budgets of the big, of the big guys. Um, so, yeah. So I think like, like you said, it really makes my day when someone like, you know, V Castro is tweeting that she just made the Stoker uh, con reading list with her books. It's like damn straight because that woman writes her ass off. Like, like she is owning horror right now and Haley Piper is on fire and Cynthia Paleo is on fire and like women are blowing up the scene and they don't always get the big publishing deals. You know, it's like, it's
2: yeah. still not- This is a great segue, Sadie, <laughs> because those three authors you just mentioned, I just helped build the library journal, top 10 horror of the year. And those three authors are on there yeah. um, because I understand that I have, influence. And so here's the thing about libraries that's different than what Sadie does. And I wrote about this in my book. I didn't talk about Stephen King in my book. I didn't annotate a single one of his books. Because if you are in a library, yes. and you don't know who Stephen King is, right. I can't help you. And I literally say <laughs> that it made my editor book list laugh. I think she put it in like the review she did on my book. But here's the thing about libraries. The thing about libraries is that we have a thing and people might don't know this, there's certain authors that you can pick to put on automatic buy. So depending on the size of your library, I was at a larger library. So we did the 250 author plan and we could every year update which 250 authors from their list of like every author who had a book that came out in the past year that we want on automatic buy. So Stephen King is on, even if your library only has the 10 books, right? The 10 book plan. Even if your library only has the 10 book plan. Stephen King is on it. So I don't have to worry about reviewing Stephen King, writing about Stephen King. He's not even given reviews in library journal and book list. What they do instead is we have high demand um, releases, and so they do a little blurb. So if you go into like book list every month, like the biggest high demand releases are the titles by authors that you're already buying, and that you're probably getting automatically and it just lets you know about it. So it might be like a little mini review, like one sentence about plot and one sentence about the readers who may like it, that appeal. So I don't have to worry about that. Now, your question about Stephen Graham Jones though is a good one because yes, I was one of the people that talked about Stephen Graham Jones that reviewed his books way before he was as popular as he is now, um, but in the library world, maybe in the, our feeds of horror stuff on Twitter, Stephen Graham Jones is super popular. But let me tell you, in library land, he's nowhere close to James Patterson, Nora Roberts, um, you know, Dean Koontz, even, sure. you know, when he that has a book sense. come out. And so it's really important for me to understand that I can't overpromote any horror author, even Paul Tremblay's numbers and Grady Hendrix, who every library loves, <laughs> you know, yeah. even he is not going to have the full immersion that the vast majority of the books that are going out are. But I do take seriously promoting the, the the voices that are less blasted out to the world, in a way that reminds libraries that they're there and they're awesome. Like V. Castro, Haley Piper, and Cynthia so Pollay. Those are great examples.
0: My my recent one is Zoya Stage. I love Zoya Stage. Oh yeah, Zoya Stage. Um, yeah, she's just that getaway book that came out this year was fantastic so and it's um, funny
2: because that one went more to the crime sections in yeah. library um journals so i didn't get that one but which is fine but i actually my favorite one of hers is wonderland which is her most supernatural and and her most i think most quote-unquote horror of all three yeah i loved but, it
0: i've never been more scared of a tree
2: yes a tree i talk about that all the time i'm like she scared me for trees Stephen graham Jones ruined <laughs> ceiling fans everything's right. like <laughs>
1: Yeah. 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 Horror ruins everything. I was going to say too, um you can also in your review kind of correct um misinformation out there too. Um because on Amazon, uh Rachel Harrison's new book Cackle is actually filtered into vampire fiction and it has nothing to do with vampires. <laughs> it's witch lit and it's about friendship and and women and a, you know, self-discovery journey. It has nothing to do with vampires. So in my review, I like full-on
2: corrected it. Well, that's always funny to me too. I see authors like take screenshots and they're like, you know, whatever category they're on Amazon, yeah. it's Like I'll take it, but it's wrong. Right,
1: right. <laughs> right. It'll be like a, a some, some book, done, one of Duncan Ralston, who's an independent author who writes extreme horror, his book got uh, filtered into spirituality. And I was like, um no <laughs> i don't think um a religious person's really going to want to pick that up but help yourself
0: <laughs> so in the spirit of kind of summarizing because like we've i feel like this conversation very organically got to a lot of the points that we had discussed um hitting on but um if there was something that you would want Be- becky you you talk about this and you teach people about uh, about reviews and stuff so maybe you have a a concise, you know, this is what reviews mean or this is the purpose or this is what I want people to know about them. But is there any kind of um, summarizing of what we just talked about that you you think is important for people to think about?
2: I think people need to understand that reviewers all have a certain agenda. Some of them, like ours, are extremely professional and thought out and we're trying to hit a certain audience. Um, but every reviewer, whether they're professional, Professional or amateur have an agenda. And that's, I'm not using that in a negative way. You need to understand that the review is coming from a person and this is their opinion. And you can take it or leave it. Don't attack the writer, don't kill the messenger, but use it, use a whole bunch of reviews to organically decide if the book is for you or what your opinion is. And then if you have a different opinion, add it online you know, put it into Amazon, put it into Goodreads, um, share in this discussion of the book everywhere. I once had, I once read a book. Um, it's an author. I like China. And his book, the city, the The city in the city. And I like him. I did not like this book. This book was winning all the reviews. And so I went onto my blog then this was years ago when it came out. And I said, okay, I'm publicly saying this, like, I didn't like this book. I thought it had serious third act issues. I was totally into the world. I was loving it. And then kaput for me. And I feel terrible because so many people loved it. I got so much, but I was very honest and I wasn't mean, you know, and I got a lot of feedback from other librarians who were like, Oh, you made me feel so good because I didn't like that book either. Or now I feel like I can give my opinion about a book everyone else loved that I didn't like and share why. So I set an example for doing it in a positive way, but don't be afraid to share your opinion, but please be respectful both when you're writing a review, but also when you're reading someone else's because Sadie and I don't really like getting the hate mail.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and I agree with everything that Becky said. And then also like some points too, just to, you know, make sure that we're all like in the same community, you know, and not to pity pit each other against one another. Like there tends to be this faction between like, paid reviewers and hobbyists, amateurs, or whatever. And I've heard it said, like, you know, well, we're out here book blogging for the love of books. And that's the only reason we're not getting paid, which kind of casts paid reviewers in a light what we're not also doing it for the love of books, which couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, Becky's entire career is built on the love of books, my independent woman owned business is built on the back of loving books. Like we all do this out of the passion for books, whether we're getting paid or not, and it doesn't need to be polarizing. And then my other comment is just, I think it just makes people feel really sad when they share a opinion about a book, whether they loved it or they didn't like it and they get dogpiled on um, from the community. Um, I have a friend recently who was so excited about a sequel that was coming out and he got like so many people being like, Oh, I didn't like the first book. So I'm not excited. It's like, Why do you have to tell him that he didn't ask and he doesn't want to hear that. Like if he's celebrating something, don't yuck other people's yum, you know? So in the world of reviewing, like can we all just maybe read reviews and take it or leave it and, you know, take, take in things with a grain of salt, maybe develop a little group of people that You can talk to about books or read reviews of people that you trust or their opinions always speak to you and just kind of gel with that. And people who don't talk about books the way that you enjoy, don't read those reviews. There, you know, there's so many out there. You you can take take it or leave it, you know?
2: And Sadie and I don't always agree on a book. I might not be able to tell from our reviews, but we've had conversations (laughs) privately where we don't agree about a book. There's books that she loves that I'm like, man, books I love that she's like, man, but that's good. Yeah. I love them. Yeah.
1: I like talking about those books.
0: (laughs) Those are well, those are sometimes the best conversations Mm -hmm. when you're like, no, no, I, you know, I thought this or whatever. Um, But I think at the end of what you were saying, Sadie, was something that I had been thinking about. Finding someone with a reviewing voice that speaks to you is probably a very important thing because just like finding an author that you enjoy. Um, If someone says something that hits you in the right way, where it's like, I'm going to take in this review for, you know, it, uh, you know, for what it is. And I, I, I like what they say. um, And when I try the books that they read, I end up liking those books. This is a voice. I know that I'm comfortable with probably stay with that person. And then maybe branch off based on who, who they have in their sphere. Because, yeah, why would you keep going back to a person where you're like, oh, this is an idiot? Why would I try to engage the person that I consistently disagree with? So you find a reviewer you like, that reviewer should be one of your go-tos and then like maybe just build from there. But um, what I love the most about all of this is like it's a passion for books. Um, it all, for me, grew from the fact that I really enjoyed talking to someone about a book that we both mutually, you know, experienced. And from that, you get to maybe have a bigger experience, whether you agree or disagree. Um, And uh, it's just one of the things that has been the most gratifying for me in the time that I've been, you know, doing uh, my reviews and then also interacting with the authors is the fact that, like, I just get to take that isolated experience of reading the story and grow on it to make it something bigger and to make it more like deep and meaningful. Yeah.
1: Well said.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when I decided to do this, I was like, I got, I, I, I never talked to reviewers. It's going to be so fantastic. And, um, uh, Sadie was the first person. Well, I had a couple of ideas of people. Gabino was another person that I was, I had reached out to, but Gabino's, little bit tough to nail down so sadly I would have loved to talk to Gabino but um Sadie was like here's some people that I I I would I would love to join and I said oh my god I've talked to Becky before she's fantastic that's how this all came together so um I'm so excited that this this became such a like a positive and but I think it still was a very informational conversation
1: yeah, if, I just want to say, if people are not following Becky on Twitter, or reading her blog, or using her as a resource for books, then you need to consider what you're doing with your life if you love horror, because she is the horror maven, and she's been doing it for so, so long, and she has really helped me, especially like through a lot of the harder conversations that happen around books, like diversity and you know, like she was talking about sensitivity readers and stuff like really important issues that can be, um, you know, difficult to navigate. Um, and she has those conversations with librarians, and she often tweets like really important things that people need to hear. So
2: definitely follow Becky on. <laughs> Thank you, Sadie. And I will say that Sadie, um, I've enjoyed helping Sadie through I think her growing pains because her platform is much larger than mine in the world, you know, in the Library world, mine is big, but Sadie's is big everywhere. And um, I know that she, you might not see it when she's working, but she really thinks through as she's grown. We talked about those transitions at the beginning. She's been very intentional and conscious of it. And I think that that's important for people to know. And we we are constantly in communication about those larger issues that I think the public doesn't realize goes through our brain i think they think we just sit around and we're like we're full of ourselves and want to tell everybody what we think but in reality we are professionals who take it very seriously that is not as to diminish amateurs because there's something to be said for that too but it's a different it's a different animal when your review ends up inside a book or in the ad copy or you know both of us work directly with the publishers and you know it's it's hard it's it's You have to be more measured about it. So, Thank you, Becky. You're welcome.
0: So then the the final thing that I'm going to say is for anybody who's deciding I want to start being a reviewer, they should just reach out to both of you and and nag you endlessly about, about that, right? Is that the best approach for starting as a reviewer?
1: I mean, reading a lot of reviews is a great way to get a feel for what you like. I mean, some people leave I statements entirely out of their review and just right from the perspective of every reader. Um, I tend to on Goodreads, if I'm going to just drop a casual review instead of a platform, I use I statements and I'm very conversational about how I talk about books and I'll cuss and I'll say like excitable things. And I, (laughs) you know, it's, I just leave it all um, on the table fangirling sometimes. Um, And then sometimes I put on my, you know, professional hat and I don't use I statements and I speak for every reader and stuff. So yeah, definitely if you want to get into reviewing, follow some reviewers like you were talking about who have a voice that appeals to you and practice. I mean, it costs nothing to get a Goodreads account or Amazon Then start reviewing like the books you're buying, you know, through whatever platform you're buying them from.
2: Excellent. And I try to combine both. I try to combine in in the print outlet's I have my, you know, professional review without the I statements, but then for example, like I'm going to be posting, I keep mentioning my review of Echo, but it's the most recent one on Monday, the 8th of November, I'm going to be posting it. And I have the draft review from Booklist, which is basically just a longer version. But then I do a whole thing about the I statements. Here are the things I really liked. Here are the things I couldn't fit in there. Here are the things you need to know. Here are the, you know, possibly problematic things. Although that book didn't have a lot of problematic, but if there are, I say that. Um like one of the things that didn't fit in my review of that book was every single chapter is titled after a famous horror novel mm. which mm. I'm going to talk about when I have more space because I only had 180 words. <laughs> but um, I'm very I'm very salty about that some days. Um, but I will say if you are anywhere in the library world library adjacent in any way um if you work at a library if you work in a school if you're in education anyway and you want to start writing for Booklist or Library Journal, you can reach out to me. Um, Reach out to me on Twitter, at RA4ALL, and I will connect you. There's like Booklist has open calls for reviewers sometimes, and there's a writing test. And um, same thing with Library Journal. It's a good way to get started because you have editors who are going to be, I I can personally attest to them. Uh, Susan McGuire at Booklist and Stephanie Close at Library Journal are excellent editors, as well as being great human beings. So they will help you through it. Um, but if you're not library adjacent in any way or education adjacent, um, I think, yes, what Sadie said, starting on Goodreads and just practicing.
0: Excellent. Well, um, I want to thank the both of you for taking some time. We went a little bit longer than we um, originally thought, but I, it was a fantastic conversation. So Sadie and Becky, thanks both of you for, for sharing your, your wisdom and experience with us.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having us, Rob. That was great. Yeah, this was
0: really fun. Massive thank you to Sadie Hartman, Mother Horror, and Becky Spratford for joining and talking about book reviews today. Okay, that was my episode about book reviews with Becky Spratford and Sadie Hartman. Um, Fantastic conversation. I love both of them. It's always great to have them on, and I'm glad that I have a way to keep this conversation alive for people to listen to, even with Lit Reactor going away. Um, Lit Reactor's been a great resource since the early 2010s, and it's, uh, sad to see them go, but I'm very happy to have had them as a resource all these years and proud of everybody that was working with them. Uh, there's a few more to go of this and, uh, coming soon. I just recorded the other night, my episode, uh, looking forward to the first half of 2024 with Becky Spratford and Emily Hughes. So we talk about some of our books that we're most excited about. So you can be looking forward very soon to an episode where about 30, maybe a little bit more than 30 books that are coming in the first half of 2024 uh, are explained a little bit. So until then, thanks for joining me and we'll be back soon with more Lit Reactor Archives.